Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now we're living in very strange and I suppose somewhat scary times and some people believe that the conditions that prevail at the moment are fertile ground for a rise in right-wing extremism. Now, this is a form of extremism which many simply describe as fascism, but it's rooted in, I suppose, a philosophy that is ultra-nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-a lot of minorities, that type of thing. We've seen this in various places around the world, not least in the United States with the rise of Donald Trump. Um, There's elements of it in Brexit, some people would suggest, and in Mainland Europe, there's certainly been an awful lot of it in very different countries. It hasn't hit here in any major public way, but some people believe that it is certainly making some inroads in that respect. These extremists, they've been very active on social media in recent years in particular, but in the last few months they've also appeared on the streets, sometimes showing up at protests that we've seen that are, for example, against the conditions of the that the government are imposing and the pandemic and anti-mask protests and all that kind of thing. There is um, it's more than a suggestion, there's very hard evidence that these kind of extremists show up at these protests and try in one form or another to recruit people to their flag, so to speak. Now, there has also been a group on the streets when this has happened of late who are anti-fascists, effectively. These are people who they are what it says in the tin, they're opposed to any form of fascism and this extremism. Some elements of it are understood to come from um, elements of, of dissident republicanism, but it, it's wider than that. Um, and these people, I suppose, in broad terms, would be at the very opposite end of the political spectrum. They'd be pretty far hard left. Twice in the last few months, there's been violent conflict between these two groups. And in another incident... An LBGT activist who was just observing what was going on totally innocently, she was viciously attacked by right-wing elements at one of these protests in Dublin outside Leinster House and she sustained serious head wounds. So is the extreme right on the rise and what can be done about it? Joining me to discuss this is Dr Natasha Drummy, who lectures in UCC in Criminology and Government. Natasha, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Natasha, I suppose we'll start in the basement. What is right-wing extremism? Well, essentially, it's um, this concept of of, of a pushback almost. Um, A lot of the modern definitions of right-wing extremism were kind of based on the the traditional understandings between the more conservative and reactionary political parties. So whereas the conservatives want to maintain kind of a status quo, and um, right-wing extremists want to even go more further beyond that. They want to kind of push back against the political system that's in place. And um, a lot of the modern right-wing extremists are 
focus on a lot of things like um, anti-immigration, um, racism, anti-political establishment. So they tend to be kind of a very fringe-based or very extreme far-right and political organization based around these concepts of pushing back and the more traditional, the more conservative values that we see in the political spectrum. Would it be fair, Natasha, to say that in recent years, in a global sense, and I mentioned Donald Trump, Brexit, uh, mainland Europe, that following the 2008 economic crash, you have huge swathes of people who are disaffected by the prevailing political culture and even the whole liberal democracy structure going back to 1945. And in some of these instances, people have sought refuge, if you want to put it that way, or an alternative in this type of uh, extremism. They have. I think people oftentimes when there's any kind of emergency or any major shift in the status quo, in the political system, in the economic system, in society in general, they try to look for something that brings them closer to understanding their their place within that spectrum. And oftentimes what the right wing can do is play up to the fears that people have. So it's the fear of the unknown, fear of those who are different, fear of different political ideologies, fear of different religions. Um, A big narrative that we've seen, especially in Ireland, based around this far right, was this concept of the foreigners are taking our jobs, the foreigners are taking our homes. And this builds into an innate fear that we have, that we are losing who we are as Irish people, perhaps. And we saw a lot of this happen during the process of globalisation and with joining the EU. And when we started to lose some of our what, what we call state sovereignty, people tend to want to push back to the traditional, where we were. And you mentioned Donald Trump, and he's a prime example of this. It's making something great again. It's coming back to the old traditional ideals. And these groups are masters at being able to play on those fears, accentuate them, and find a scapegoat to target all the ills of society upon, be it a different race, um, a different political group. And that's, that, that's one of their biggest strengths that we see. And it, the way that they do it is that they just play against what is the biggest threat going on in modern society today, how can they capitalize on that without being, I suppose, overtly um, antagonistic to, to to the masses as well? In this country, and, you may, and I, I think actually that really brings it home, this idea of harking for a past glory as in America, make uh, America great again. As in the UK, for instance, a lot of people would say uh, Brexit to some extent was harking back to 1970s when the country wasn't as multicultural, etc., would I be correct that in, in the type of right-wing extremism we've seen in this country, an element of it concerns going back to religion, to that kind of right-wing Catholicism that might have been here 30, 40, 50 years ago? I think the issue of religion in this country is very complex. and um, We've had a very, very tumultuous history with, with the events that have gone on with the Catholic Church. And I think it's actually one of the stepping stones that these groups can't attach themselves as, as security to as somewhere like the U.S., where you have the the evangelical side of of the the spectrum there. I don't think at the moment there's enough of a religious pull within the Irish system, even those who want to go back to the more traditional versions of of Ireland. I don't think there's enough of a base here yet for them to latch on to something like religion. But politics, yes, and the the leading by example. So we're looking at the likes of UK and Brexit. We're looking at um, Le Pen in France, for example, um, with the banned burqa campaigns that we saw running there. 
And we're looking at what, what we see is this almost normalization of the extreme views within politics. We have an American president now who has almost normalized racism, sexism, homophobia, and the dark underbelly within society now has a, has a voice. They're looking to the highest power in the world and they're seeing their own views reflected in that person. And that's, that, that's probably feeding more into their success and narrative than religion by itself might be, for example. Right. And the other thing that would strike me, Natasha, is that, um, as I said, we've seen it in America, we've seen it in the UK, um, Europe, other parts of the developing world, even uh, Brazil, for instance, Philippines, these places. So far, certainly in terms of any political purchase, it hasn't caught on here. What would you ascribe that to? I think within our political spectrum, we're quite centralised anyway. We tend to have a very narrow spread, but we know we do have a representative party with, with Sinn Féin. So we do have what we see as being almost the fringe party or the more extreme right-sided party in Sinn Féin. I think one of the things that stands to us as well is it's it's our history. We're a very nationalistic country. We, we, we've had the troubles. We've had the, you know, the, the this history of wanting to become a republic. And I think that in our version of politics is much more powerful at the moment. And it's still a very, very strong um, draw for people politically. It's talking about a, a, an independent Ireland, you know, having it as a state. So I think for us, our history is very new as well. This idea of the republic is, is, is very new. And that plays more, I think, into the want and the underlying tensions of the people rather than something that you might see reflected in the UK, the US, France, Germany. I think we have our own version of what we want to be as a state and that still plays a very, very major role. So that, that, that's where the groups like Sinn Féin will come in and they represent what, what we would call the fringes there. Um, and because we already have that party established, it's it's quite hard for any other groups to try to come in and represent themselves in any other form. We... I. Don't, I'm not saying that we're immune and I don't think that we're ever going to be immune from having an, an extreme right party. But at the moment, I think we're, we have that representative face in the Sinn Féin party. So it's kind of protecting us in a, in a strange roundabout way from having a, a much more fringe or extreme alt-right group emerge. Yeah, I, th- I find that interesting that, like, for example, Sinn Féin, as you say, a lot of people who would have been disaffected with mainstream politics, particularly in the last decade or so, they'd go to Sinn Féin and parties of that ilk in other countries played the race card and that's how they attempted to gain popularity. But, um, and personally, I'd have issues with other aspects of Sinn Féin in terms of their relationship to democracy, but to be fair to them, in this they effectively acted as a bulwark against any kind of extremism like that getting political purchase in recent years. Well, they have, and that could also be a downfall to the group. And um, there are still those within society who would say they're not doing enough, they're not extreme enough, they're not pushing my belief system enough. And the more the more openly political a group becomes, and the more normalised they are within the political process the more they're seen as being the enemy, almost. They become, you're just like the other parties now. And then that's the space that these other groups can then infiltrate and say, look, we say Sinn Féin haven't done what they promised. They're not being extreme enough. They're not having these views that you share. But we have these views. We can try to do something else. So it's kind of, a, it's a double-edged sword when it comes to, to political parties and this kind of viewpoint. It's 
they need to make sure that they establish themselves politically to have a voice and represent the people. But at the same time, the more mainstream they become in their policies, the more people they may actually lose or they may be all providing that opening space for the, the more extremist groups and views to creep into society. Yeah, like they leave that vacuum behind, I suppose, as as they tip, tip toe towards the mainstream and ultimately government. And once they're in government, that's a double-edged sword too and that you can promise the world before you arrive there, but once you're in there, you have to do things and nobody's going to be able to do everything they promised. Well, this is the thing, being able to sit on the sidelines and express your values and views without being the person who actually creates the policies and implements those policies is a very strong influence to have in politics as well. And as you mentioned, the more that they become involved directly in the political process and the more that people are seeing the economic downturn, for example, um, issues with hospital beds, the COVID crisis that's going on at the moment, they, they are now a face for the blame rather than being on the sidelines blaming those who are in power. So it's a very, very, very tough balance to maintain. And that's where this vacuum will emerge in terms of People are going to be upset. They're going to be looking for change. And where do they turn now if the fringe group or the the, the, the group that they thought were the representative of them don't exist anymore in their views? Right. And then, Natasha, I was down myself in the outside Leinster House last Saturday. There was a gathering. And this may be typical of a lot of the things in some ways. It was a gathering, uh, a meeting, ostensibly to talk about the pandemic conditions, you know, the, the anti-masks and the sort of thing. But it was being run and organised by a group, the National Party, um, whose leader is Justin Barrett, who has been a veteran of an awful lot of those kind of right-wing causes going all the way back to youth defence and this kind of thing. And I had the impression that there were people there who were there because of the lockdown thing, but at the same time, the National Party themselves are, I think, very obviously anti-immigrant and that right-wing extremism, they would have strands of that there. And does that then become a recruiting ground effectively for them that they attract people in under the flag of, of, of something like an anti-mask thing and then try to win them over to, to their type of politics? It is. It's harder to come at a target group or an audience with a blatantly overt, we say, racist policy. It's easier for them to jump on the fear. So again, the, the, the lockdown, COVID, wearing of masks, this, this idea that somehow wearing a mask means that your freedoms are being infringed upon. Bill, starting off slowly and building up that process to getting to the point where the more extreme policies then can somehow come into play. And it's all about scapegoating and doing it in such a way that it's not really overt. So starting small, any political organization, I mean, I, I, I've studied terrorism for over a decade now, and it's all about this kind of concept of indoctrination. You start small, you offer somebody a shared identity or a shared thought or a shared feeling, get them involved in that process first and then slowly build upon that. So it goes from wearing a mask to something political and then the political goes to the economic and the economic goes to the social and it, it spreads out that way. It's almost like an ink blot. If you drop a little bit of ink, the initial dot is small, but it will start to spread out a little bit more. So it's very easy for them to prey on a fear and build upon the fear and then slowly integrate other concepts that could be linked to. So, again, if you look at something like like Trump is saying he's calling the coronavirus the China virus. OK, that, yeah. that narrative already has an inbuilt racism in it because you're saying the China virus. Therefore, it's China 
Chinese people. So it's all about this kind of idea of slowly building these narratives into the fears of people. And then it, it doesn't become as jolting when they realize they're supporting a group that, that's built on racism and hatred and xenophobia and, and things like that. What would strike me in what you're saying, Natasha, is that social media is a perfect vehicle to effectively indoctrinate people in that respect. It's the ideal breeding ground. And these groups tend to use social media. They're masters at it. I mean, they know how to, I think um, it's, it's called clickbait, it, using these headings, these massive titles and getting people's attention that way. And it's the easiest way to do it. You don't realize that you're being indoctrinated at the time. You're reading a couple of articles. They sound like something you you kind of believe in, but you're not necessarily 100% sure. And at the end, there's a link to another one. And then you kind of go, oh, I'll just read this one. And then there's a link and a video. And you kind of become entrenched in, in these social media postings. And it's a very slow process. It's not something that happens overnight. But the more you're open and the more you see these things and the more that you read the more you become involved and the idea builds within your own subconscious then. So it, it's a very, very clever way. Um, either they're using profiles, they're using things like TikTok now for, for, for the young generation. I know it. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it sounds funny and we kind of giggle at it, but at the same time, those 30-second clips have an impact. You know, they're having an impact on the understandings, the the connections, they're building on fears, they're building on things that maybe people at home don't necessarily want to talk about with their friends. But online, they can be racist, they can be homophobic, they can be whatever they want to be. And they're finding a community of shared um, ideas and shared values within that system then. And in other countries, as it appears, there have been entities, large entities emerging from that swamp, if you want to call it that. Is there any specific, I mentioned the National Party, I don't know how significant they are in terms of that extremism, or are there other groups that are as significant? And do any of them, in your estimation at this stage, have sight of the prospect of making some inroads politically? There's a number of different groups within the, within the country at the moment, in Ireland specifically. I just don't think that they've got the grounding as of yet. The biggest danger for now going forward is that the government will end up doing something or producing something or saying something out of context and it will rile up the the population. So even things like COVID at the moment, we're on a very, very dangerous kind of time where people are completely fed up. They want their freedom. They want to be able to go back and meet their friends and have their coffees. And you're being told from above. And there's this whole concept of it's only a big brother move. The government wants to control us. They want to tell us what to do. And that is feeding into a lot of people's fears. So it's not to say these groups won't establish themselves. I don't think at this very moment in time, there's enough space and support. But at the same time, they still do have a support base within society. It's still maybe the underbelly of society, not the visible support base that, that we see with other political parties. But the fact that they still have support shows that there's a, a complete chance that they could establish themselves even greater within the political process. And in that vein, Natasha, um, if you look at any country, now I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine it's the case in the vast majority of developed countries, you would have, even in a small way, be it on regional or town or city councils, you might have individuals of that ilk uh, getting elected there. Here, to be fair, to this point, there's been very little. Someone reminded me recently about a Fine Gael councillor who was spouting some of this stuff and 
came into conflict with the party and was ultimately expelled, you have at national level, uh, I can think of two politicians who made um, anti-immigrant or anti-asylum seeker comments and there was a certain backlash against them. And I'm just wondering that in, in what appears in that regard to be a very tolerant culture or a culture where there's pressure not to express those kind of views, would you still say despite that there are real dangers in the coming years that we could see politically a rise of some of these uh, groups? I definitely think there there is a chance that we, that we can see a, a, a greater support base emerge for these kind of groups within society. Um, if you think of how multicultural Ireland has become, even in the last 20 years, it's a completely different country. And for a lot of people, that has happened too quickly, that the country has become too multicultural. There are questions of have we lost our Irishness? Do we know who we are anymore within, within the world? And these are very strong fears that people have. Identity is such a powerful thing. And when it's challenged or threatened, like I mentioned earlier, we do look for ways to to get that back and to climb back into that kind of narrative just for ourselves so we know who we are within the world and in society. So I I do think that we, we are at a point where we need to be very, very careful when it comes to things like freedom of speech, for example, and not being able to have discussions in within society that we should be talking about. So we should be able to talk about things like race, gender, sexuality, politics. But we're kind of getting to the point now where it's all becoming muted, that we you were afraid to offend anybody. And what that does is it pushes people into the underground on, online, for example, like we mentioned with social media. And it's very hard to then understand the levels of these things within society, understand true racism or true homophobia or true anti-immigrant beliefs, because it's being pushed below the surface into the kind of what we call the underbelly of society. Um, so I think what we need to do is we need to kind of pull back a little bit more and engage more in this concept of free dialogue and free discussion. Because the more that we kind of subvent or prevent people from being able to have those conversations, the more we're pushing them towards groups that then have that narrative as their their main focal point, those extreme alt-far-right groups. Yeah, that's interesting from this perspective, Natasha. As you say, the scope within which you can express your views has narrowed and the idea of giving offence to somebody has greatly increased. People either take or you can give offence on a basis that wouldn't have been like that 20 years ago. And as you say, in that, in that environment, you drive any feelings that are anywhere like that, you drive them underground. But how do you pull back from that? I think it has to just, it's a natural process. And we just have to be able to have these conversations openly. And even this, this concept of offending people, I think we should have the capabilities to be able to discuss these sensitive topics. And, and I mean, politics has to lead in that direction as well. We, we can't be afraid for our politicians to be able to openly discuss these concepts and say, look, maybe, yes, there is a problem in Ireland in relation to Islamophobia or racism and actually openly have dialogues about them. I think that's what we need to see. We need to see some sort of push to have these open spaces where people can air their views and be challenged or be, you know, debated against. But that's what we're losing. So I think the, the government can do something here and play a, a role in terms of providing a space for open discussions on the most sensitive and important topics that will impact the security and safety of Ireland going forward. 
But you're, you're talking about more than what the government can do there. You're talking about culture, surely, because, you know, as I say, we are at a point, we, we, we have come from a scenario whereby uh, discrimination, um, power struggle, power imbalance to do with minorities, to do with women, to do with people's sexuality, all of that was completely out of order. And I think what you're saying, you correct me, is that to some extent we've gone too far in not being able to discuss these issues for fear of causing some kind of offence. And that's not just an Irish thing. That That's the thing across the Western world. I find it difficult to see now how we pull back from that. Yeah, I look, I mean, a prime example would be something like, we we'll say, direct provision. We mm. hear a lot of talk about direct provision, but it's coming from those who don't actually live in there, haven't been involved in direct provision system, don't know what it's like to have to, to, to live in that system for, for years at a time. We're missing that linchpin between actually those who are being directly impacted or living in a scenario versus those who think they know how to fix the situation. Um, the same with we, we take the traveling community within Ireland. I've been to a couple of conferences on the traveling community and they're on the panel. We might have maybe six to eight speakers, not one of them from the traveling community. It's crazy. Yeah, I think that's something that we need to work on culturally and generally anyway. It's it's actually hearing from those people who are involved in the processes that we're either afraid of or we're unsure of and that's something that needs to change but again it, it is a cultural thing it's a social thing and it's very very hard to give a directive on that it's very hard to tell people you need to talk about something but at the same time it does need to be talked about and people are again it's this fear it's this fear that we I'm not able to speak about because I may offend. And these groups, they jump on that again and they say it's because of the people coming in, the, the, the foreigners will say it's because of people of different religion. It's their fault you can't talk about it. So they're playing on that and they're almost twisting the words and twisting the idea to fit their their um, their wants and needs as, as a political group. No. Violence. I mean, there have been instances, and I've heard tell of many others, um, whereby minorities, people who perhaps are recognised, even though, uh, unless they're actually on, on some form of a protest themselves, in a whole of LGBT, and, you know, various uh, others, as these people would have, uh, being attacked at various places. Is, does violence in that regard form a part of that extremism, and is it organised? Oftentimes, it's not specifically organized. It tends to be in it, this, this idea of, of an opportunity. So they see something or see somebody that's different. The biggest thing, I think, at the moment is the social media. It's of attacking somebody or using racist slurs. And it's getting likes on Instagram, which is a very strange thing to do. But violence does become part of the norm because oftentimes we just we aren't equipped to have the discussion. And the only other way that we can show our indifference is through power. And oftentimes the, the one who can control the other person is the most powerful and violence tends to come in there. Um, it doesn't oftentimes become, it, it, I suppose, it doesn't really become organized in terms of there's a message sent out to say attack somebody with, a, with a, you know, a hijab or attack somebody who's black on the street. But I think people's frustrations come through and they just see it as an opportunity to either show themselves to the group or promote themselves in terms of their belief systems. Now, we've seen a lot of this happen in Ireland at the moment. There was a video recently of a, of a lady on a bus, I think, in the north, um, 
screaming racial slurs at some black teenagers on a bus for no reason whatsoever. It's just, it's becoming sadly normalized. And I bring this back again to the idea of, of Trump and this normalization of the narrative. If we're looking to the US, and we, we do that, we've done it for years, the US is kind of this pinnacle of politics and freedom and democracy. And what we're seeing there is the legitimization of the extreme. And that's feeding globally now. So we've seen the upsurge and the rise in violence in, the, in this far right context, all coming from a normalization of the language, a standardization, and this kind of idea that it's it's legitimate now because the president of the US has said these things. His quotes on all Mexicans who come to America are rapists and drug dealers, for example, sets a standard that those who are different are bad. And it's it's becoming normal, normalized in our minds. And the race issue, Natasha, like, for example, there is racism. It's just blatant. It's horrible. Uh, it, it, it is there in every country. But would I be right that, for example, when you have people who are racist, effectively just racist, they may be expressing it in various ways. The emergence of groups, then these right wing extremist groups, do they give people like that a focal point? To, to, to tune into and, and that's one way of, 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 um, of dragging people into their standard. Definitely, because in the political spectrum, in the political system, we don't have a political party who has overt racist tendencies or policies. And these people feel that they're almost disenfranchised from society then. None of these parties represent who I am. None of them have my viewpoints on how, how I view Ireland, what Ireland should look like. So they're searching for a place to put themselves within the political system. And oftentimes they'll see, again, social media being a prime example, they'll see these groups posting anti-immigrant or racist or homophobic pieces. And that's the only political aspect that they'll ever see in terms of the, the political spectrum and that that then draws them in. That's the support base. They may disagree with 90% of what the, what the other belief systems are with that party, but it's just that one piece that makes them feel part of a community. That's what they're looking for. Now, we've also seen, and I saw it myself again last Saturday, um, what you might call the opposition to the rise of extremism or fascism. Um, is that a phenomenon here? And is, it, is there examples abroad similarly so? Yeah, well, I mean, I think everyone's heard of the Antifa, this kind of anti-fascist yeah. ideology rather than a group, I suppose. It's more of a, it's this anti-fascist ideology that people go, go towards. I mean, it's definitely there. there. There's always going to be a reaction to any action that we have. So if there's a right-wing reactionary group or a right-wing extremist group, there's going to be a left-wing alternative that's going to push against that, that, that normalization of, of the right-wing the biggest danger that we're seeing, and again, the US, I keep coming back, but it's a, it's a good example to show we're almost hitting this idea of, of civil war standards where you have literally a complete divide down the middle and there's no in-between space left. You're either looking at these things and saying, this is my belief system, I agree with the right, or I completely disagree with all of your politics and I'm on the left. So we, we need to be very careful that that doesn't creep into our society here as well. And that's where the, the, the discussion comes in, this idea that we need to be talking more about these issues, you know. But in the, in that respect, Natasha, to be fair, um, there is, as as we're talking about an extreme right, there is to some extent that extreme left. And um, I think there's a group called uh, Anti-Fascism Action. And, you know, you have this Antifa uh, ideology. But I would suggest that certainly now, 
and we can talk about the future in a minute, the, the crowd in the middle represent the vast majority of people as far as I can see. They do. And I think this is where we, where we stand in, at the moment. And like I mentioned, our political spectrum in general has always been very centralised anyway. So there isn't that much difference realistically between the political parties when we're voting, when we're deciding on what, what we want politically, economically and socially. But the danger comes when these parties, these the middle ground, more left, are not representing the majority anymore. Mm. When their policies start moving away from those traditional ideas of what, what, what they should be, what they could be providing. And that's when the space then opens up for these kind of groups to, to come through. So at the moment, it's not by any means representing the majority of people in Ireland. But at the same time, there's enough of a support base there for it to be a threat. Um, Ireland even made Europol's um, listings in terms of right-wing extremist groups that, uh, in, in their latest publication. So it's something we've never been on before, and um, but we, we're now on it. So it just goes to show that there has been a significant rise, especially in the last, I would say, maybe 10 to 15 years. We're seeing it creep in a little bit more and we're seeing a growing base. Now, it's still minute in terms of political spectrum understandings, but it's there. Are we talking about thousands or tens of thousands? It's very hard to tell because it's 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 an underground thing. Is still mm. it's still very covert. Um, there's no real overt, you know, political base for them to meet up. But it's all undercover still. So estimates would be between thousands. You know, it, it's very very hard to tell. I don't think we have a specific number as of yet. But I, it, it's it is there. About 10 years ago, Natasha, when we were facing into, after the economic collapse, facing into a major recession, I remember writing a piece uh, about, as you mentioned, well, it was over the previous 30 years now, I'd suggest it was nearly 20 years then, where we'd become a multicultural country, to some extent enriched by immigrants coming in. I thought, and I think others did too, that the coming recession could be very dangerous in respect of that type of extremism. Turned out, thankfully, to be wrong. Since then, and it's sort of gone back in the last five, six years. We have seen major changes in terms of, again, going back to US, UK, and that thing is nearly like it came dropping slowly. We've also seen, as we're talking about now, even though it's very far more recent phenomenon, Sinn Féin perhaps moving out of their traditional role and perhaps there's a vacuum there. And it would seem also that we're facing again, not to mind the pandemic, but, you know, it looks like we're facing into another recession. Does that mean that this time around the... the things could be a lot worse in that respect. I think it's a time where they can gain more ground. That's the that that's the biggest issue that we face. I um, in 2008, I don't think they had even been established themselves in, enough at that point and there wasn't as many different aspects that they could latch on to in terms of selling their narrative to, to society to the people to the public at large. But now we've had so many different things happen within the since 2008 since the, the initial um crisis. And what we're seeing is that there's more fears within society. People are afraid or worried about a lot more now. And the world has, I mean, even even things like the environmental issues, you know, these are all things that people are thinking about, climate change. And some, they're taking these narratives, twisting them into their own ideologies and ideas, and then selling them back as a way of saying, look, we're here to help you in this issue. We are the ones that can do it. Sinn Féin won't do that anymore because they're, they've become normalised. They've lost their, you know, they've lost their standing with, with, with the people. And what they're doing is they're able to kind of creep in under the radar 
and build that support base. The danger would be if we left it alone and we didn't address this 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 issue in five years time, they could emerge as a significant political organization that might challenge the, the status quo within society. So we have to be we have to be conscious that yes, this is an issue. It's not just impacting America, the UK, France, Germany. It is here. It's just not it hasn't been able to establish itself as greatly as it has in those other societies just yet. Finally, Natasha, I'll put you on the spot and just briefly project five years forward. Have we half a dozen TDs in the doll who would subscribe to that kind of philosophy? It's very hard to tell. We definitely have some form of a, a more right-wing narrative emerge in our political spectrum. I think it's inevitable now, just with the way that the majority of countries have seen it slowly creep out in the last, we'll say, five, ten years, especially what was going on now in the US and this kind of normalization of the narratives in the large scale political spectrum. It's giving it's giving, I suppose, food to these to these groups. And it's saying look, it's not just us that think this. It's here. It's in the UK. They're leaving, they're leaving, you know, Brexit is happening and look at Trump in America, Le Pen in France. So they're using these as, I suppose, tools in a way to narrate or show the people that, look, it's not just us that think this. Look at look at these other countries. Look where they are now. And it's it's a way of selling the, the good old days back to the people. I think we're going to see some form of it establish itself a little bit more. But the danger will be, where is the tipping point? You know, where 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 does that tipping point come in and how dangerous could they actually be if they do get involved directly in politics and build that massive support base across the country? Very interesting. And as you say, Natasha, something that most definitely requires vigilance. Natasha Drummy, thank you very much for joining us today. That's it for this week, folks. Uh, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. You can get us on all the usual platforms. Keep the head up. Stay safe and see you soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.